0: three two one flight cleared for takeoff Thanks for joining us today on Kentucky Caliber. We're going to be talking about this week the dangers of nuclear war, or rather, what assessing the risks of nuclear war. And that is, of course, because of the current uh, conventional war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And there have been comments made by the Russian president that don't quite... explicitly threatened the use of nuclear weapons but pretty strongly implies that uh, Russia could do so if they feel like they, uh, the need arises or they, uh, they determine that that is a necessity or in their best national interest so they, they were the speeches that Putin made were sort of kind of what you I would call veiled threats um, they weren't explicit he didn't explicitly say under this circumstance I will use nuclear weapons but he did hint pretty strongly by reminding the world, that hey, you know, Russia is a nuclear power, and uh, that by itself is designed to convey a, a message that they that they do in fact have those weapons at the ready, and because they're in an active shooting war with Ukraine, that um, they might decide to use some of those weapons uh, in that theater or against those that are potentially against those that are helping arm and supply Ukraine, and so of course um, this has generated a number of different types of responses from other nations, including the United States. President Biden has made uh, comments about it, and he's he's made different, President Biden has made different comments about it. He, at Sometimes he's, you know, warned of the risk of Armageddon. At other times he's said, I don't believe the Russian president would do that because he's a, a rational actor and isn't suicidal. And so for those of us that are, you know, on the sidelines, at least, when we're not directly involved in, in making government policy, but, but live in some of the countries that Are either directly involved or their leaders have uh, have commented on it. It's an important issue for us to think about. And so, what I wanted to do uh, today is assess a little bit what is the actual threat of nuclear war, and how does that you know compare to the previous times where we lived under an almost constant threat of nuclear war. You know, we for those of us that grew up any time during the Cold War, um, and I grew up as as a kid in the '80s, I can remember. You know, that this was pretty much a constant threat at that time, where we lived under the shadow of of the knowledge that there there could be a, a real full scale nuclear exchange with the the Soviet Union, which still existed at that time, because they had a, a substantial large, um, a substantially large nuclear arsenal as we did. Uh, we were we had ours pointed at them; they had theirs pointed at us, and everyone knew that any given morning you could wake up and, and find that a nuclear war had had already happened and if you were lucky enough to wake up and then you'd have to try to deal with the the consequences Um, so you know the cold war is a little different because at that time and that's where i wanted to start the discussion for context because during the cold war both the the american and the soviet civilian populations had a degree of readiness for a nuclear war and what i mean by that is they at least made some preparations in other words, you had um, here in the United States, you had a lot of folks who bought bomb shelters. They were very popular uh, in the 1950s and 60s, so a lot of homes have them. Those were stocked with canned goods and water, uh, radios, batteries, you know, just essential supplies that you would not be able to get maybe after a major nuclear exchange and that could, that could sustain you for at least some time um, after a nuclear war had been fought. At the same time, the U.S. government spent quite a bit of time and effort communicating to the public, and the Russian government, or the Soviet government, rather, did this to a lesser extent, but they still did it, to tell their citizens you know, what they should do in case a nuclear war happened. Here are the steps you should take to prepare. Here are the steps you should take if it happens, and here are the steps you should follow after it happens. So even though the specter of nuclear war was still you know, horrific, there, the public's involved, this, the body of citizens in both the two principal countries, which was the, the United States and the Soviet Union, the two main bodies of citizens had a degree of preparation. They, they, were, they knew what they should do, what they were going to do, and they had at least some supplies on hand to cope with it. And the governments also had various um, stockpiles of supplies and contingency plans for what to do after a nuclear war had been over, how would the government continue to function, where would the the backups be? Who would be in charge? Uh, so there would be some civil authorities and some semblance of of order in the aftermath of a nuclear war. Well, so that that was during the Cold War. So even though the the threat was ever present, there was a, a degree of readiness. I would argue that today our degree of readiness is is far lower than it was during the Cold War, and that's mainly because uh, a couple of factors. For one, most people today don't really consider the threat of of a nuclear war to be significant. And many people, especially those who are under 30, and I I picked that number because they were born after the Soviet Union collapsed in ninety one. So they did not grow up under the constant shadow of of the threat of nuclear war. So they've never known that. To them, it's it's an abstract concept or something they've read about in a history class. So they, they haven't actually lived that day to day, and they don't they don't have the same degree uh, as as a mindset. We're not they're not prepared to to take that on. At the same time, nobody buys bomb shelters anymore. Few people. Okay, there's there's survivalists out there. Of course, that's a. a, a sort of a subcategory of society where folks stockpile lots of food and, and fuel, um, but that's not a mainstream type of uh, movement. It's not um, a, a large percentage of the society. Um, whereas during the Cold War, ordinary average citizens, who who would never have considered themselves to be survivalists in today's terms, did stockpile food and supplies and did buy bomb shelters, and so they were better prepared for a potential nuclear war um than we are today. In addition, you know, our population has grown, so there's more people at risk, and many of those folks are renters. Uh, they rent either apartments or flats, and so folks who, who live in a, a large urban area, which are primary targets in a nuclear war, and who live in apartments um, don't have a, uh, a cellar or a bomb shelter or a basement full of canned goods. So even if they survive the initial blast, you um, Sustaining themselves with food afterwards will be quite difficult. So there, there, I would say, I would argue that there is a greater number of people today who are less prepared um, for the aftermath of a nuclear war than there was during the the Cold War itself. Which I call that. I mean, pretty much, you know, from 1950 or the, at the end of World War II. Until '91, when the Soviet Union collapsed, those those were principally the years that we can call uh, the Cold War. You can make an argument that it's that never really ended, or this is the war in Ukraine um, constitutes part two, and and that's a good argument, but that's not the topic I want to focus on today. Um, so during the Cold War, there was more readiness uh, than there is today. So that's one part, uh, one reason why the risk is higher. The second big factor, or big category of factors, today that's different during the cold war is that we have stealth aircraft the united states has a lot of different stealth platforms whether the russians do or not it's unclear it's certainly possible that they do i don't know for a fact if they do or they don't i know for a fact the united states does and so the stealth aircraft particularly those that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons are ideal for strike weapons because they can fly without being detected either by satellite or by radar so this was a, this was something that was not present during the Cold War when aircraft would take off whether they were carrying nuclear weapons or conventional we could see theirs they could see ours and that provided sort of a, a not not a degree of comfort but a degree of reliability that we could know what our adversary was up to so we could look at our radar screens we could look at our satellite our satellite data and we would know that either they were flying or they weren't, and they would know either we were flying or we weren't. But that's not the case today. So we have not only stealth, stealth platforms, but also drones, and because drones are smaller and slower, they're much more difficult to spot, either by satellites or by radar or even by the naked eye. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch. Uh, from an engineering standpoint, it would be quite quite easy to attach a nuclear warhead to a drone, that would be almost impossible to see or detect before impact. And so because we have weapons that could be used to initiate uh, a nuclear war without being spotted, that makes it harder for each side. And I'm talking again about the United States and NATO and, and Russia on the other. It's more difficult to have a sense of reliability of what your adversary is up to. So without that, you know, there's greater uncertainty. And with greater uncertainty, there's greater risk, and so we simply don't know, and nor, nor do the Russians know what our stealth platforms are currently doing, um, and there's no way to detect those until after an attack has already happened. So that's uh, one factor. The second big factor, or the third big factor, really is the ongoing conventional war between Ukraine and Russia. And so this was this is something that was not present during the the balance of the Cold War. Um, the United States fought in Vietnam, and you know Russia fought in Afghanistan. Um, but those were those were, were proxy conflicts where we weren't directly involved with each other. The Ukrainian conflict is a little bit different from those in terms one of scale. So it's a much larger, much bigger operation. So there's more people involved, more weapons involved, more resources, more time and effort, and much more at stake. Uh, than there was, say, with America and Ukraine, or with uh, the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. You know, Ukraine is a much larger nation. It's, I think, the second largest nation um, in in what we would call Europe, if we define that. Um, if we go east, or rather west, of the Urals, in in terms of both geographic size and population, and it's of much more value to Russia than um, Vietnam was to the United States, or that uh, afghanistan was to the soviet union so there, there, are stakeholders in ukraine and there's more involved more at stake and because there's an ongoing conventional major conventional battle with russian military forces against ukraine we are of course supplying weapons to the ukrainians there's a, an interesting blog i think it was matt Tabe, who uh his his blog's really good i read it on substack i'd, I'd recommend it it's, it's good stuff yeah, he asked the question, uh, I think it was the week before last, does America have a plan uh, in Ukraine? And I would say they probably don't, beyond stop Russia from taking it over. And I'm not really sure that counts as a plan. Um, it, it could, I suppose, in a crude sense. Um, but the, what's really got this topic, um, what's really brought this topic of nuclear war to the forefront, were the, the comments made by by Vladimir Putin and If you read Russia's own military and strategic documents, you know, we we publish um, nuclear um, documents or strategic documents and plans just like they do. We have the Quadrennial Defense Review, which is, you know, published in the United States. We also have the National Security Strategy and... The Russians have a similar version of that. They have different names for it, and it occurs at a a, a different frequency or, you know, different intervals. But they still publish strategic plans and strategic um, thinking on on military affairs just like we do. And so, and we have folks who speak Russian who translate those. And so if you read the Russian strategic um, planning documents and their strategic plans, you would find that the Russian... Planners, both military and political, consider the threat of nuclear weapons to be an asset. And specifically, it's an asset that they want to use during a conventional battle like the one they're fighting in Ukraine. So they've seen this coming. It's not not a surprise to Russian planners. Um, contingency planners have to look at all kinds of different scenarios. And the possibility of them being involved in a, a conventional conflict like the one in Ukraine is certainly one they gave a lot of thought to beforehand and so the reason they would do that the reason they would make a threat of using nuclear weapons is to throw nato and the united states off balance they want the united states and nato to be concerned about the potential russian response and they want us to they want our plans and our supply to be disrupted so they gain um, tactically from making a threat of using nuclear weapons, it helps their military campaign, it helps their conventional forces by th- creating doubt and uncertainty and, and hesitancy on the part of NATO and the United States and, and mostly the United States since we're the principal actor in that alliance. So that's why the Russians are doing it. So if anyone tells you that that the Russian president is is some kind of maniac or madman, I I don't see anything to support that. Quite the contrary, the the statements that he makes are, from his point of view, rational. These are rational statements and rational actions um, in the sense that they, they have a logic to them that is applicable to their own national security interests and objectives. So from Putin's standpoint, it makes sense to threaten the use of nuclear weapons, and, and he has done so just as his doctrine uh, says he would. I'm not too concerned about that from a standpoint of, of what might happen. The real danger, I think, uh, in the in the Ukrainian theater when it comes to Russian use of nuclear weapons is the same one that we had during the Cold War, and specifically the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that is the inadvertent Release or use of nuclear weapons, and there's a really good book that just came out. Uh, or actually, it's it's new to me. I shouldn't say that it's new. Um, hang on just a second here, I'll get the title. Oh, there it is. It's called uh, "Gambling with Armageddon: Nuclear Roulette from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis" by Martin Sherwin, who's a historian. Um, it's a really good, a really good historical work. It's it's quite detailed, so not everyone will want to go through all 600 pages. But the portions that are relevant to this discussion are concern the the arming of Soviet submarines with nuclear-tipped torpedoes during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, of course, keep in mind, uh, during the time when that happened there in the early 1960s, the United States did not know that some Soviet submarines carried that particular weapon. So we didn't know they had it. And... The record of it was classified in, within the Soviet military, so we didn't really know about what had happened during that time until after the fall of the Soviet Union, when archives were declassified and opened up for outsiders to come in and, and or gain access to. And so that's one of the things that we learned is that some of their submarines did have nuclear weapons, and at least one, if not two, came very close to for, for their captain to order the use of those weapons because they thought they were being attacked by american destroyers who were at the time dropping depth charges not directly on them but close enough that they could feel it and so when you're when you're in a combat situation where things are actually going bang or boom in in your vicinity um, it becomes more difficult to keep a level head and to really determine um, hey is that someone shooting in my direction or is that someone shooting no kidding at me And so in this case, because there was a, the Soviet submarine captain, that particular sub happened to have a higher ranking officer, a staff officer who would come along on the deployment, um, they ended up being the one that, that countermanded the, the the release, so you know one person essentially um, stopped it from happening. And so you can imagine if if the Soviet sub captain had went ahead and used a nuclear torpedo against American forces, the likelihood that that would have escalated into a, an all out conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union there was was pretty high. Um, and so my point is, where exactly Russia's nuclear weapons are, um, only the Russians know. The American and NATO intelligence have some idea because Russia historically has kept their nuclear weapons stored in about a dozen different facilities. And we know this because the START Treaty, which is the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which Russia or the Soviet Union and the United States signed, stipulates that site visits be conducted one side by the other. We go visit their sites. They come and visit ours so that we can have a, a little bit more sense of um, reliability about what they're up to, and this helps create stability and, and reduces the chance of war. And so we, that's how we know, I'm saying we, the United States and NATO, because we've had folks that have visited Russia's sites like they visited ours, and we know they keep their nuclear weapons in about a dozen places, uh, one of which is, is actually fairly close to the Ukrainian border. And so anytime there would be movement, to or from those facilities of nuclear warheads or weapons, there's a there's a fairly good chance that that our satellites and our observation platforms would see it. Not 100, percent but a good chance that we would see it, and, and we have not seen it yet because those are those facilities are under almost constant surveillance, and we haven't seen that yet, um, which is a good thing. But the point being, um, what complicates the situation in Ukraine is you have platforms like the SS26. Which I believe the Russians call a Skander, and that particular is a, is a short-range missile that's ground-to-ground. Ground. It, it launches on the ground, and it hits a target on the ground. It has a range of about 300 kilometers. problem with that specific platform is it's dual-use, so it can carry a conventional warhead, or it can carry a nuclear warhead. And from an observer who's watching from a distance, there's really no way to tell which one it's carrying until impact. And those are already in theater and, and being used, so with conventional warheads so the Russia has used a quite a number a large number of conventional warheads against Ukrainian cities and targets uh, to date they have not used anything tipped with a nuclear warhead. but if they did, I think that's one of the most likely platform delivery platforms that they would use there's a There's a limited number of, of that particular missile system, and they have some others that are similar to it. But it's mobile, which is a big advantage, and it's dual use, which makes it harder to find and to to track and what it's doing. So, if there were to be um, a launch of a nuclear weapon, it would most I think it would most likely come from that platform, and it would most likely target a high value, um, either a city like Kiev or a large military installation that the Russia wanted to destroy. And so, if those weapons have already been placed in the hands of of com- commanders in the field, then we would face a situation similar to the, the one in the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the Soviet subcommanders had nuclear weapons at their disposal. And what happens if they decide to use one, um, not necessarily with presidential approval? You know, it's, it's an assumption we make that the, um, the command and control is ironclad and airtight, of course, the Russians do have a, a, a good command and control system that's fairly well established. President Putin, like our president, has a briefcase that has what we call the, the nuclear football, which is the launch codes. Um, although I believe in the case of the of Russia, they have three briefcases, not just one, and that their chief of the general staff and other senior military commander, which is sort of their equivalent to our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, they can initiate a launch, but it, it takes two out of the three. So no one can do it by themselves. Um, and I believe one of those two has to be uh, President Putin. But but still, those are the thing about that is the briefcase. Those are for large-scale strategic nuclear weapons, like their ICBMs, which stands for intercontinental ballistic missile. Those are much larger weapon systems with longer ranges that are designed to destroy cities or entire military bases. Those are the ones that would be fired from Russia that would hit targets in the United States. Those are not the type of weapons that we would expect to see used in Ukraine um, because those are not, they're not designed for that. What we're talking about in Ukraine and, and what President Putin has hinted at is the use of smaller tactical nuclear weapons. And so those are the ones that I mentioned earlier that are stored in about a dozen facilities that could have already been shipped to Russian commanders in the field. We don't think they have been, but they could have been. Um, and they could be in the hands of Russian commanders. And so what if somebody uses one without authorization, um, like almost happened in during the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think that's probably the most significant, or rather the most likely scenario that we would see a, a nuclear weapon used in Ukraine. And I think it's quite clear that the consequences of that use would be severe, not just for Russia, but also for Ukraine, because there will be a, a significant and catastrophic amount of damage inflicted on whatever target was struck in that hypothetical situation. And of course, the United States and NATO would then be in a situation where they would feel strongly compelled to initiate um, a response to that. Some some retired uh, brass have commented on that. General Petraeus, who was also formerly head of the CIA, has indicated he thinks that if that were to happen, uh, the U.S. And the, and the NATO would launch a, a a large-scale attack on Soviet military. I'm not 100% convinced that's true, but he's been doing it far longer than, than I ever ever did, so uh, you have to take that into account. If there's plans in place, and he was hinting that there was, um, Petraeus, I mean, that's a possible response that we could see from uh, the United States and NATO to a, uh, a Russian missile attack or nuclear attack in Ukraine. Um so I think overall, what does that all mean? Well, I think overall the risk of a nuclear attack or of nuclear weapons being used is probably as high as it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's for And I would argue slightly higher than the Cuban Missile Crisis because the Cuban Missile Crisis was a standoff. It wasn't a, a situation where large armies were actually shooting at each other, which is the case today in Ukraine. And it's much closer to home for the Russians uh, than Cuba, which is thousands of miles away. So I would argue that the risk is higher today than it was uh, during most of the Cold War, and that our readiness is lower today than it was uh, for most of the Cold War. So I assess that to be a, a, higher, re- a higher level of nuclear risk today uh, than what we saw For most of the cold war even during the cuban missile crisis that that's what i think i don't really think that president russian president putin would would use nuclear weapons unless they felt there was absolutely no other option as a last resort because i think he knows that the nato and and u.s response would be game-changing for russia and I think that's something that they take into account. I do not believe any of the national leaders involved, whether it's the American president or the Russian president or the European leaders uh, or, or the Ukraine's leaders, I don't believe any of them are suicidal. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that the deliberate likelihood of, of using nuclear weapons um, is high. It's certainly possible. It's possible that, that Russia could decide to go ahead and do that in Ukraine, but I don't think it's highly likely. And that's the good news. The, the lingering question, or rather the challenge today is, you know, how do we bring an end to the conflict in Ukraine and thus turn down the heat and reduce the overall risk uh, of not just a wider conventional war between NATO and, and uh, Russia, but also the, the possibility of nuclear war. And at this moment in time, as of 2022, the, the likelihoods or prospects for uh, diplomacy are bleak. Uh, the Ukrainians will not accept anything less than a full what Russian withdrawal from Ukrainian territory, and Russian commanders and their Russian leaders will not accept anything less than a surrender, and the the um, ceding of territory already conquered to Russia. So those are two diametrically opposed positions. There's no there's no wiggle room. There's no give. So there's no room for diplomacy. And what's getting ready to happen now as the as the fall comes on and the weather changes to the winter. We will see a few things that i think are different um during the winter months one is the the, the flow of russian energy to europe will become more important and i think russian knows that as temperatures you know plummet and europe needs more fuel to heat that will become a larger um that will increase the leverage that the russians have over the uh, energy supply towards europe whether we find out who attacked Nord Stream, i don't know if we ever will maybe we will um I think I talked about that either last week or the week before. It's there's no hard evidence right now that I'm aware of that can prove who did it. And so until there is, it's just speculation. But it, but regardless of who did that, the the role of energy will become more important as the winter months uh, become more prevalent. And that's you know in Ukrainian theater, you know you're going to have very cold winters. And historically, Russia fights well uh, in the cold. So do the Ukrainians. Um, there's other theaters of conflict in the world where that's not the case. That was we saw that in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, jihadists uh, don't like winter at all. Um, they usually they tend to actually go home during winter months and come back in the summer of what we used to call the summer fighting season. But that's not the case with uh, with Russia or Ukraine. Uh, both are historically good at fighting in the winter and under winter conditions because they 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 grew up in a cold environment in there in Central Asia and Siberia. They have cold weather equipment and. Processes. They know how to handle it. They know how to fight in the cold. So, the cold will be increase the hardship on civilians because they will have more difficulty. And I'm talking about in Ukraine now. They'll have more difficulty uh, in in obtaining enough supplies and, and heat to stay warm during the winter with war going on. And that will be a new a new leverage point for Putin. And I expect him to press that to the maximum. Um, which is also why I think when winter with the winter months coming on, he will shift gears and start trying to pull that lever more and, and throttle back on the threats of nuclear weapon uh, as using in nuclear weapons as the winter approaches. I think you'll look more to use energy as a, as a source of political leverage in the international community and, and less so the threat of uh, using nuclear weapons. But anyway, that that's just my assessment of, of what things look like today. And war is a very fluid environment uh, in the battlefield and in a war zone. You know, Things can change drastically in a very small amount of time. Territory can be taken, gained, lost, regained all in a period of a few hours or days, and so what the situation looks like next week could be completely different than what it looks like uh, today. But that's what I think it looks like today, and I appreciate everybody listening. We'll have more to say on this topic, of course, uh, in future episodes, but I just I wanted to focus on that because it's such an important, um, far-reaching um, concept. I mean, nuclear war is one of those things that's it's low probability, but it's high impact. So while it's unlikely that it may happen, the consequences of if it does are much greater than than any other type of, of conflict that we've ever seen uh, before, including a conventional war, which is still ongoing there um, in Ukraine. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Take care. <laughs>